talk a lot on this podcast about the golden age of detective fiction, that period between the First and Second World Wars when the fair play puzzle mystery was at the peak of its popularity and its biggest creators were writing their best work. But in the last few years, there has been a sense that we might be living through, if not a second golden age, at least another moment of great admiration for this kind of crime writing. New books that show golden age influence are finding millions of readers, and reprints of lost gems from a century ago are everywhere you look. There's never been a better time to be a fan of the classic murder mystery. It wasn't always like this, though. Once the golden age style whodunit had well and truly fallen out of favour after the Second World War, there was a long period of several decades in which publishers were loath to touch authors who wanted to write books that followed the example of those from the 1920s and 30s. When before internet bookselling and today's thriving culture of reprints, you just had to hope you encountered your favourite authors out of print titles in a second-hand bookshop one day. What we have, essentially, is this huge peak of popularity for the Golden Age style mystery pre-1940, then a big trough of disinterest in the second half of the 20th century, before the interest begins to tick up again in the 2000s, so that we reach our current situation here, at the start of 2024. And since this is the beginning of a new year, I thought it would be interesting to look back over all of this, and read my way through the classic murder mysteries life cycle over the past hundred years. So join me, won't you, as I go back in time to January 1924. Welcome to She Done It. I'm Caroline Crampton. Here's how this is going to work. Starting with a book published 100 years ago, I'm going to read my way through the last century of mysteries, checking in every decade to see how crime fiction has developed and changed. So that's a book from 1924, one from 1934, 1944, 1954, and so on. I have done a couple of versions of this experiment before, if you like the idea and want more of it. In 2021, I read A Century of Whodunits from 1900 to 2000. And in 2022, I clawed my way out of a serious reading slump by starting in the 1920s and ending up in the 2020s. But I've never looked at specific years like this. And I think the restriction of having to read something from precisely 100, 90, 80 and so on years ago will throw up some interesting and unusual choices. So, let's begin. On the 28th of January 1924, the third and final instalment of a story titled Anna the Adventuress was published in the Evening News. This was the serialised version of a novel that was then published in August of that year under a title more familiar to us, The Man in the Brown Suit. This was Agatha Christie's fourth novel, a rollicking thriller-meets-romance that sees its heroine Anne Bedingfield travel from Devon to Cape Town and then further into southern Africa in pursuit of the answer to a mystery that she witnesses on an underground platform in London. It was partially inspired by the year of round-the-world travel that Agatha and her then-husband Archie Christie had undertaken in 1922 as part of the British Empire mission, 
during which they had followed a very similar route to the one that Anne takes in the book. This is perhaps a slightly surprising choice as my starting point for this centenary reading journey, since The Man in the Brown Suit is by no means what we would now think of as an archetypal fair play mystery of the 1920s. It has some elements of puzzle cluing about it, and indeed it hints at a plot device that was going to make Christie very famous later on in the 1920s. But it is largely a breathless, cheerful adventure story, rather than a closed circle whodunit. I picked it for two reasons. Firstly, because it's what the She Done It book club is reading together this month, and I am nothing if not efficient with my reading time. And secondly, because I think its presence here is a good reminder that the golden age is not nearly so homogenous as we perhaps think it was with hindsight. Especially in the years immediately following the end of the First World War, early career writers like Christie were experimenting with all kinds of genres, tropes and styles. The classic murder mystery was very far from being a settled entity, and this book, which I greatly enjoyed, is a good reminder of that. Next, we skip forward a decade to 1934, from which I am reading The Plague Court Murders by John Dixon Carr. This was a very difficult choice to make, it should be said, because 1934 is also the year in which Agatha Christie published Murder on the Orient Express, Dorothy L. Sayers brought out The Nine Tailors, Nio Marsh's debut A Man Lay Dead appeared, and it also saw the arrival of one of my favourite Marjorie Allingham books, Death of a Ghost. But for reasons that I hope will become clear, I decided to go with The Plague Court Murders. John Dixon Carr, an American writer, had married an Englishwoman, Clarice Cleves, in 1932 and made his permanent home in the UK. The majority of the dozens of crime novels he would go on to publish were set in Britain and his two series detectives, the academic and amateur sleuth Dr Gideon Fell and Sir Henry Merivale, a baronet and barrister who also has a medical degree, are both English. It is Merivale that I'm interested in here, because The Plague Court Murders, published first under one of Carr's pseudonyms, Carter Dixon, marks the sleuth's first appearance in a novel. Carr had already published half a dozen other books, though, featuring other characters like Henri Benkelin and Gideon Fell, and you can see in The Plague Court Murders that he's already settling into his form and his craft. This book is centred around the trope that Carr was to make his calling card, The Impossible Crime. The body of a psychic who is due to hold a seance in a haunted house is discovered stabbed in a small stone cottage with all doors and windows locked. The ground around the cottage has 30 feet of undisturbed mud around it, apparently showing that nobody even approached the building, let alone went inside. All possible suspects were actually conducting the seance at the time of death, meaning that they were all holding hands. It seems impossible that a murder could have been committed, and yet there is a corpse to explain. Carr is scrupulous when it comes to playing fair by his readers. There is no ghostly explanation here, although the book carries a heavy mantle of Carr's trademark dread and gothic-tinged horror. With his skilful plotting, the impossibilities of the mystery are gradually revealed to be possible after all. For this reason, The Plague Court Murders feels like a good point to check in on the 1930s, when the fair play mystery was in full flower, and writers like Carr, Anthony Barclay and Dorothy Elsayers were beginning to innovate with the form. And just like that, we're already past the true golden age of detective fiction. 
which experts generally consider to have come to an end in 1939, when the Second World War started. Two people who had been very influential in the previous two decades, both as writers and as co-founders of the Detection Club, Dorothy L. Sayers and Anthony Barclay, both retired from publishing full-length detective novels at this point. But thankfully, plenty of their crime-writing colleagues kept going, and one particularly prolific writer during the war itself was Edith Caroline Rivett, better known by her pen name of E.C.R. Lorak. I can't absolutely vouch for the accuracy of this calculation, because not all of Lorak's work is easy to track down, but I think she published 15 books between 1939 and 1945, divided between her E.C.R. Lorak and Carol Karnak pseudonyms. That's at least two a year, a really astonishing number, given everything else that was going on. My choice for my 1944 book, therefore, had to be a Lorak. Checkmate to Murder is very much a wartime novel, set in London, where the author herself had been based in the early years of the war, before she evacuated to Lancashire to stay with her sister and brother-in-law. The action of the book takes place on a foggy night in Hampstead. A group of friends are hanging out in an artist's studio when an elderly rich man is shot in his home next door, and the friends end up being the prime suspects for his murder. What makes this book perfect as my choice for 1944, I think, is that Lorak combines the best of the skills from the last two decades of crime fiction with contemporary details about what it was like to exist in London under wartime conditions. Her cluing is superb, her misdirection excellent, her work with alibi is very strong. And on top of that, we get a really accurate slice of social history, via the way she incorporates blackout regulations and the changes to police investigations that the war has brought. The detective novel itself is still very recognisably golden age, but its context is changing with the passing of time. The distance between 1944 and 1954 feels very large. And my selection for this year, That Yew Tree's Shade by Cyril Hare, makes it feel like we're arriving at the end of something. Cyril Hare was the pseudonym of Alfred Alexander Gordon Clark, a barrister and judge who published his first crime novel of ten, Tenant for Death, in 1937. His recurring protagonist, Francis Pettigrew, is also a lawyer, but by the time we get to That Yew Tree's Shade, Hare's penultimate novel, Pettigrew is older, retired and no longer living in London. In a manner that has become familiar from the career of other long-running sleuths like Sherlock Holmes and Hercule Poirot, Pettigrew is called out of a bucolic retirement here to deputise for a local judge who's taken ill. But it is as a witness rather than as an officer of the court that he is drawn into the mystery that occupies most of the book. He turns out to have been the last person, he believes, to see a woman named Mrs Pink alive as she walked into some local woods, where she would be later discovered, murdered. As such, he is able to help the police fix the time of death, a very important element of the story. We have lots of golden age tropes here, which is to be expected as Hare started out writing detective fiction at that time. But there is something elegiac about this novel, as if it is conscious of its place at the tail end of a tradition that was beginning to be superseded by thrillers, police procedurals and other kinds of writing that considered the fair play puzzle mystery to belong to the past. It's definitely a book that is looking backwards, not forwards. Surprise! For 1964, I'm repeating an author. We have a second appearance by Agatha Christie, 
with a Caribbean mystery. I did this for two reasons. Firstly, I feel like Christie can't be fully represented just by The Man in the Brown Suit, a novel that isn't remotely typical of her later output. And secondly, by this point, Christie is one of the few true Golden Age-era authors still publishing very consistently, some of the others being Michael Innes, Gladys Mitchell and Niall Marsh. At a moment when a new generation of crime writers is taking the baton forward, I think it's a good idea to check in with what one of the old guard is still doing. This is a moment of transition. 1964 was also the year of Ruth Rendell's first Inspector Wexford novel, From Dune with Death, and P.D. James had just debuted Adam Dalgleish with Cover Her Face in 1962. I had already read A Caribbean Mystery a long time ago, and I remembered it as not my favourite Christie by quite a long way. But upon revisiting it now, I think I was perhaps put off by some of the rather of-their-time elements in the various film and TV adaptations I've seen. Although this is undoubtedly a later Christie, in the sense that nostalgia and reflection has become a major theme, the plot is still tight. I also like the way that Miss Marple runs this case more actively than some of her others, where she's merely an observer. Seeing her out of her usual English milieu and in a holiday resort adds novelty too. This is still very much a golden age closed circle mystery rather than anything more modern or experimental, but I appreciate that Christie was still adapting her work to include the world as it was when she was writing rather than trying to write what would, by this point, have been historical fiction. In History's Secret Heroes, Helena Bonham Carter shines a light on extraordinary stories from World War II. This is a series that tells the tales from the Second World War that are unjustly less well-known than the oft-repeated histories of that time. Personally, I tend to default to the position that military history, or the history of wars as it is usually told, is just not for me. But diving into this series has shown me that I can be wrong about that, and that maybe I just haven't been experiencing the right sort of history. The brand new second series of History's Secret Heroes is out now, and it's absolutely full of brilliant episodes that had me gripped from start to finish. In it, we learn how a single woman, Christine Granville, skied into occupied Poland and gathered essential intelligence for the Allies, which changed the course of the war. We also look at how Raymond Gurem used his circus skills to break in and out of a Nazi internment camp to sneak in food and supplies for his family, and how a young Filipino woman named Josefina Guerrero took advantage of her health condition to join the resistance and become one of the most consequential spies of World War II. I'm especially drawn to stories about code-breaking, as I love puzzles, and to me it often feels like the real-life counterpart to solving a mystery. I loved the episode called The Unbreakable Navajo Code, about a group of Native American soldiers who devised a code for the Allies' use, and I also really enjoyed the one about Emily Anderson, an Irish cryptanalyst who worked both at Bletchley Park in the UK and then in Cairo to decrypt vital intelligence. Helena Bonham Carter voices all of these episodes in a way that makes you feel like they're just being whispered directly into your ear by someone who really knows how to tell a dramatic tale to full effect. There are experts interviewed, but also friends, family members and witnesses, so each story feels personal and intimate as well as historically significant. Episodes will be released on Mondays, wherever you get your podcasts. But if you're in the UK, you can listen to the full series now, first on BBC Sounds. Now we have really left the golden age behind us, it feels like. The Face of Trespass by Ruth Rendell is my choice for 1974, 
and this was like nothing I had read to date on my centenary journey. This is a standalone novel, not part of Rendell's Inspector Wexford series or the books she wrote under the pseudonym Barbara Vine. It centres around a writer, Grey Lanston, who, despite some literary success, has been reduced by a series of unfortunate circumstances to the life of a recluse living in a rundown cottage on the edge of a forest. His desperate love affair with a beautiful married woman, Drusilla Brown, is a big part of what has driven Grey from the world. So far, this sounds more like a torrid romance novel than a crime one, I will admit. But what Rendell does marvellously in this book is introduce a constant sense of eerie unease. Drusilla keeps asking Grey to murder her much older husband for her so that they can live together on the money she will inherit. And the psychological study that Rendell draws out of Grey's agony as he contemplates this disastrous course of action is as suspenseful as any thriller I've ever read. Harking back to the early 1930s for a minute, because when am I not doing that, this book made me think of Anthony Barclay's experiments with introducing the then-new concepts found in the field of psychology to detective fiction, in books like Malice Aforethought and Before the Fact. Ruth Rendell is able to push the malice and the menace so much further in her own psychological study, and the result is both creepy and fascinating. Arriving in 1984, it's time to say goodbye to one of the last true Golden Age sleuths still out there detecting. Gladys Mitchell's 66th and final detective novel, The Crozier Pharaohs, was published posthumously this year, following the author's death in July 1983. It marks the final appearance of her sleuth, Mrs Bradley, who had appeared almost annually in a mystery novel since her debut in Speedy Death in 1929. Now, I know that Mitchell and her psychoanalyst creation are controversial among some mystery fans. Some people love them, others can't stand them. But there can be no denying that they were a major presence through many of the decades through which we've just travelled. And unlike some other final outings for long-running detectives, thinking of the last Tommy and Tuppence novel, Postern of Fate, ouch, the Crozier Pharaohs actually finds Mrs Bradley on good form. The pharaohs in question are not to be found in Egypt, but in an English seaside town where a pair of dog-breeding sisters care for their pharaoh hounds, the oldest known kind of domesticated dog, apparently. Of course, a precious dog goes missing, and during the search, the suspected dognapper is found drowned in a local river. Mrs Bradley, or Dame Beatrice as she is now, and her regular sidekick Laura take on the case. And while this isn't my favourite Gladys Mitchell I've ever read, it was a pretty solidly enjoyable book, which I was actually quite surprised by. I'm not sure it can be said to be especially emblematic of the 1980s, because I think Gladys Mitchell always went against the grain of every literary trend she ever encountered, but I'm glad to have got to see Mrs Bradley off in style. We've arrived at 1994. I'm reading Original Sin by P.D. James. The sentences must be very short now. That's what most of the other crime writing I've read from this period is like conjunctions are out. Semicolons? We don't know them. Quotations in other languages? Forget it. P.D. James, though, is still using commas and peppering her work with layered allusions to writers like William Blake, and I love her for it. The philosophy and the architectural history is dense in this story, about an old-fashioned publishing house headquartered in East London. The company is experiencing a series of anonymous, dangerous pranks 
But by the time James's Scotland Yard detective Adam Dalgleish is called in, the chief executive of the publishing company has been murdered. I enjoyed this book greatly, perhaps the most of any new-to-me book that I read for this episode. But it wasn't until several weeks after I'd finished it that I worked out why that might be. First, I read Ian Sinclair's original review of the book for the London Review of Books, in which he completely tears it apart and condemns it as, quote, the final surrender of the Golden Age murder mystery, and says it reads like an Agatha Christie force-fed on Pevsner. I now think Agatha Christie force-fed on Pevsner might be my literary holy grail, and I'm very grateful to Ian for articulating this, even if he did mean it as an insult to P.D. James. And then I finally twigged why some of the elements of this book seem very familiar. It has a lot of similar elements to a 1957 novel by Nicholas Blake called End of Chapter, which I read a couple of years ago. It's also set in a publishing house, and without getting spoilery, there are some other things about the two books that line up as well. I believe P.D. James even had to address the suggestion that she had based her plot on Nicholas Blake's when Original Sin came out. She said that the similarities were coincidental and unintentional. But for me, it goes some way to explain why this novel from 1994 still feels recognisable in some aspects. It is reaching back into the past in one way, even if it wasn't intended. It feels very apt for 2004 that I first encountered my book choice not on the page, but on the screen. Case Histories by Kate Atkinson provided the source material for a 2011 television series of the same name that I enjoyed very much when I randomly encountered it while channel hopping one night remember when we still did that. When it came to putting together my reading list for this episode, I jumped at the chance of actually reading the original novel. This, it turns out, is the first of a series of books about a police detective turned private investigator named Jackson Brody, who, appropriately enough for our first entry into 21st century crime fiction, is brooding, troubled and bereaved. In Case Histories, he takes on three seemingly unconnected cases, each that look like having very little chance of being solved. In each one, a girl or woman has been lost or is missing, which mirrors a tragedy in Jackson's own life. Alert as I am to some of the clichés of more recent crime fiction, I was very ready to dismiss this book for displaying many of them, but Atkinson's writing is strong and the intertwined mysteries keep you turning the pages. When I looked into this book a little more after finishing it, I spotted that this is sometimes described as literary crime fiction, and that does seem fitting given Atkinson's use of interlocking narratives and shifting points of narratorial view. This isn't a straightforward point A to point B story. I think the crime novel is morphing and changing yet again. We've arrived at 2014, and I'm reading The Secret Place by Tana French. Tana is a previous guest on She Done It, And I know she's a great reader of Golden Age detective fiction, even though much of her own work is set around a police murder squad working in present-day Dublin. Still, this novel is partially based at a girls' boarding school, which feels like a very throwback trope, as does Tana's general habit of making her books interlock by manoeuvring former background characters in previous titles into lead roles in subsequent books. I don't want to go into too much detail about the plot of this book because I truly feel it's one that you get the most from if you come to it with no prior knowledge at all. But let's just say that it revolves heavily around a group of teenage girls and explores their evolving friendship dynamic as they become unwilling participants in a murder inquiry. And aside from just being a very intriguing read, 
Perhaps the most interesting thing about this book for me is that Tanner doesn't seem to feel the need that most crime writers share to explain absolutely everything. She is comfortable leaving some loose ends, some peculiar aspects of her story that just don't weave in tightly at the conclusion. I've encountered this in everything I've read by her. Maybe it was a ghost or a spirit or in your head, she seems to shrug. I don't know. You decide. If you, like me, have been raised on the exhaustive denouements of the Golden Age, this sanctioned uncertainty can feel quite uncomfortable, to have elements that just don't get explained as part of some great conspiracy. I did find an interview with Tana where she addressed this aspect of her work, and I want to read you one quote from it now. I'm way more interested in why done it than in who done it, she says. I think the really important question about murder is what can bring a normal person, someone who doesn't enjoy inflicting harm, to the point where he or she believes that murder is necessary or even desirable. Even though The Secret Place does have a page-turning mystery at its heart, that is the question it is exploring. Why this murder happened is far more important to the story than who did it. And this shift for me shows quite how far we've travelled since 1924. Ten books later, the whodunit has begun to unravel. So there you have it. That's my journey through a century of evolving crime fiction beginning 100 years ago this year. I realised that by having my last book be from 2014, I haven't brought myself completely up to date yet, and so I'll be on the lookout this year for a brand new book to read that can sum up 2024 for me, and show me what new boundaries are being pushed by the most skillful detective novelists of today. Perhaps I'll have to make a little update episode when I find it, so keep an ear out for that. Of course, this whole experiment was done with maximum subjectivity. I chose the books I read, and I think I naturally gravitated towards more Golden Age-influenced titles even in the later years, just because I don't especially like to read violent or more hard-boiled crime fiction. Even with that bias in place, I still ended up reading books that were very different from my usual fare, and I feel like I learned a lot about how the classic puzzle murder mystery was transformed and remade over the last hundred years. The Golden Age never really ended, I think, if you know where to look. This episode of She Done It was written, produced and hosted by me, Caroline Crampton. You can find a full list of books mentioned at shedoneitshow.com slash whodoneitcentenary1924. I publish transcripts of every episode, including this one. Find them all at shedoneitshow.com slash transcripts. She Done It is edited by Ewan McAleese, production assistance from Leandra Griffith. Member support for the She Done It book club from Connor McLaughlin. Thanks for listening. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.